Well, thanks to Zach and the team for leading us in worship and song. And now let's worship in the Word of God together, shall we? I want to share over the next few moments a message that's titled, What's a Man to Do? Toward a Vision of Biblical Manhood. And it's important as we study the Bible to connect the truth that we're learning from Scripture to connect it with what's going on in our own lives. What's going on in our own families and in our relationships and with what's going on in culture. And I want to draw your attention to a statement that's at the top of your notes. If you're a note taker, it'll be a slide as well. And this is going to be our guide today. This is what we're striving to reach, and it's this. When we use biblical words in biblical ways to understand and apply biblical truths, and what that really means is it points to the authority of God's Word. When we use those biblical words and concepts and apply them, our lives are transformed and God is greatly glorified. What happens is this is a work of literature unlike anything we'll ever read. Why? Because it's alive. It's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pours into our spirit. It brings about change. It brings about transformation. It's not to be used as a hammer, but it's an anvil. It's the guiding light for our lives, and the Holy Spirit will bring about transformation as we apply these truths. And that's what I want to do this morning, God willing. I want to see if I can unpack, maybe for some of you, introduce you to some biblical words, biblical concepts. For others of you, it may be to reclaim some biblical words, some biblical concepts that God has given to us for our flourishing so that our lives will be the very best that they can be and that our marriages and homes can be the strongest that they can be. But I have to just say right up front, whenever I only have a few moments together with you, like I do this morning, I won't be able to say everything that this particular passage, what the Bible has to say, I won't be able to address every particular situation or every exceptional, exceptional situation or apply this truth in every individual circumstance. And so what I'm really up to today, though, is this. I want to attempt us to attempt to look at Scripture, and I want us to ask the Lord to teach us big principles, to teach us a framework in a way that's going to point us in a right direction towards health, towards wholeness, towards flourishing, towards goodness, in every relationship, particularly in our marriage relationships and in our homes and in our families. But before we look at Scripture, I want to see, I want you to see some of the past conversations and get a sense of what's going on in our culture these last few years. April 2019, USA Today headline. 
Males at risk, boy crisis of identity jeopardizes America's future. Before that, in the New York Times, February 21st, 2018, here's the headline, boy, the boys are not all right. Psychology Today, December 3rd, 2018, boys are in trouble. New York Post, May 26, 2018, headline, Deadbeat Son is a sign of America's failure to raise boys. As I read these headlines and other articles, I get the sense that even the most secular voices today in our culture are saying something is not right. Something is not good. Boys are not flourishing. Men are not flourishing. And against that backdrop, I want us to look at Scripture today, and I want, I want us to ask the question, did God give us a pattern? Did He give us any kind of instruction? And the resounding answer is yes, He did. One of those writers in the USA Today article, Warren Farrell, he said this, the crisis that I'm talking about is a crisis of education. He said, worldwide, 60% of the students who achieve less than the baseline level of proficiency in three core subjects are boys. He said, it's a crisis of mental health. By the time men reach the ages of 20 to 24, their suicide rate is four and a half times that of women. It's a crisis of physical health. Americans' men's life expectancy has been declining. And then boys and men are dying earlier in 14 of the 15 leading causes of death. It's a crisis of economic health. The economy is making a transition from muscle to mental or from muscle to microchip. And as a result, some men and boys are being left behind. And then the writer said this, and it'll be on your screen. Listen, Warren Farrell says this, it's a crisis of shame, of boys feeling that their masculinity is toxic, that the future is female, that dads are but bumbling fools or deadbeats. It's against that background that we ask the question, does the Bible have anything to say to us? Anything to teach us? What's a man to do? Especially today. And I believe it does. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles. If you have them, and turn at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll begin in verse 1. And if you're able, I invite you to stand in honor of reading God's Word. We'll begin in verse 1. Paul says... Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And what he's talking about here, he's wrapping up the previous three chapters, this whole idea of meat offered to idols. He's answered those questions. He's talked about behavior. And really, he points out to me, to, to the church, earlier he said, be imitators of me. But now he says, imitate me as I am of Christ. So he's wrapping that up. And then verse 2, he says, now I commend you 
because you remember me and everything. Isn't he an encourager? You remember me and everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. He's talking about the traditions of the early church, the practice of the early church. What we already know about this church, you see his encouragement there. There were some problems there, and we're going to see that here in a minute. But here's the key verse for our time together today. It's verse 3. He says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. And we ask you today to bless the reading, the hearing, the teaching, the application of this timeless, God-breathed Word. In the name of Jesus, amen. Before we dive into our main focus today, I have to address and I want to speak to the issue of head coverings. My assignment today as we go through the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, was to look at chapter 11, verse 1 through 16. I'm going to summarize 4 through 16 in the light of some of those traditions that Paul is speaking about. One of those traditions was prayer. So what was going on and his concerns, Paul's concerns about men having their head covered, for example, it's embedded in culture. Because many of these men that were coming to faith in the Corinthian church were from Gentile backgrounds, non-Jewish. And what they would do in their pagan worship practices is they would pull their toga over their head in the pagan practices, and they were bringing that into the church. And Paul believed that dishonored God, so he's telling them, don't do that. Don't do that. When it came to the women, and by the way, I have to tell you that there's been a lot of debate about these passages. And the truth is, we just don't know. That's the truth. But I'm giving you some highlights. So when it came to the women, you know, he talked about them covering their head. And here's something interesting and unique to the Corinthian church. And by the way, his admonition is only to the Corinthian church to cover their heads this way, women. Could it be that one of the reasons may be is that the, there were women in that town, there was actually a thousand of them, who were temple prostitutes. And they would come down each day into the city and ply their trade. And do you know how you could tell who they were? Their heads were shaved. So could it be that what Paul is saying is like, look, cover your head because we don't want people to think that you're coming here to do business, right? But, but ultimately, we just don't know. But it does seem obvious that Paul is not stating a divine, universal requirement, but he's acknowledging a local custom. But let me pull back to our main focus from today, from that third verse, and here it is. The biblical principle of headship. Do you see that in verse 3? Paul says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. And there are three facets that we ought to see right out of the gate. And here they are. Here's the first one. When it comes to the biblical principle of headship, it's rooted in the nature of God. 
Paul says that in every, in the very being of God, the relationship of the Father to the Son is one of headship. Do you see that? The head of Christ is God. And so this principle is rooted in the nature of God, not in any particular culture. The second thing we see about the biblical principle of headship is that it's revealed in the relationship of Jesus and his body, the church. And we'll see that a little more clearly later in the message today from the book of Ephesians. And then third principle we see when it comes to headship is that this should be reflected in our marriages and in our homes. In this verse, Paul speaks and says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband. So what does this biblical word head and this biblical concept of headship mean? And this may be a familiar concept to you or it may be new to you today. And I thought the ESV study Bible's note on this particular verse and comment is a helpful way of summarizing what the Bible teaches. And that's on page two of your notes at the top. I've given it for your examination. Basically what he's saying, what the commentators are saying, is that sometimes said that this term that's translated head means source. But in all the examples, 50 examples, this expression uh, indicates authority over one person over another. And it's best to understand that that word head is referring metaphorically to authority. But I want you to watch this. And here's notice what the commentators say next. As with the authority of Christ over the church. Now watch this. This is not. In other words, biblical headship is not the self-centered exercise of power. It's not unhealthy leadership. Instead, He says instead, it's leadership that takes care to serve the spiritual, emotional, and physical needs of the wife. The head of Christ is God. That's what we read a while ago in the Scripture. That indicates that within the Trinity, the Father has an authority over His Son in leadership with respect to Christ. Although they are equal in deity and attributes, they're equal but the Father has authority over Him. And Paul applies this beautiful truth about the Trinity to the relationship of husband and wife. He says in marriage as in the Trinity. Isn't this beautiful? He says, watch this. There is equality in being and value, but there's difference in roles. So in other words, what Paul is teaching here, he's teaching the church that this concept is rooted back in the creation pattern where both men and women were created equal in the sight of God and in the image of God. They're both of equal dignity. They're both of equal value. They're both of equal worth. And yet men and women have different roles that are not the same, but are complementary as God intends. So what's the big takeaway? It's simple. 
I want to say to every man in this room, whether you are already married, whether you have a dream and hope at some point in your life to be married, here's the principle. Men, be in the best and fullest biblical sense. Be the head of your home. So you might say, well, you know, okay, Pastor Michael, that's, I get that, but, but what does that mean? Help us understand. What, what, what does that look like? Well, may I suggest three things to you this morning. First is this. Men, live your lives. Please hear me. Live your lives under the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. It begins there. If you want to be the head of your home in a biblical sense, in a God-honoring sense, in a Christ-honoring sense, in a sense that will bring glory to God, it means that you acknowledge your authority is Christ. And you're living under His authority, your Lord, your Savior, and you obey Him. That should have got a resounding amen from every man in the Right? I want to ask every man in this room today, whether you're married or single, if you have a way, if you have a desire to live in a way that pleases the Lord, let me ask you this question. Is Jesus preeminent in your life? Every part of your life? Everything exposed before Him? Do you give Him lordship of your thought life? Of what you look at when no one's watching? Of where you go? Of what you do? How you relate to others? And if you happen to be a husband or a father, how you relate to your spouse? And how you relate to your kids. Is he preeminent in your life? You see, men, it's impossible. It's impossible to be a biblical head of your home without first surrendering surrendering to your head. And that's Christ. And acknowledging his authority. Men, do you affirm that? You must have thought I was asking you rhetorically. Here's the second thing. To be a biblical head of your home not only means that you live under the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ, it means you love your wife as Christ loved the church. I want you to see a passage that pulls together this principle. It's probably familiar to many of you. It's found in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 22. Paul says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband, and notice this, here it is. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, 
so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And here it is, husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, so watch this man, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Paul goes on to say, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but now watch this, men, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. If you guys have a paper copy of the Bible, I encourage you to highlight or underline however your device, those two words, nourish and cherish. And what a beautiful metaphor that Paul is using here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The husband and wife and Christ and the church. And listen, men, two things. To love your wife as Christ loved the church is an impossible mark. No man on earth, no matter how righteous he may be, can achieve that mark. But it should be your passion. It should be the driving force in your life, in marriage, that you're striving towards that mark of loving her as Christ loved the church. And I will tell you this, men. If that's your driving force in your life, you will never have to worry about her submitting to you. I've told some men that want to tell me all the submission stuff. I've told them, look, that's an A and B conversation between God and the woman, and you need to see your way out of that. Amen? Amen. (laughs) Number one. Here's number two. And this is actually more sobering to me. When I stand before Christ as a Christ follower, I'm convinced by the Scripture that I'm going to have to give an account of how I've dealt with my wife. And men, if you're a Christ follower and married, you will too. I want to challenge you men. I want to encourage you. I want to exhort you. I want to implore you, be the head of your home. Live under the authority of Christ. Be submitted to His Lordship. Obey Him. Obey the Scripture. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Nourish her. Nourish is such an interesting, it's a great biblical word. It has as its root that you provide food for someone. So think about this, to feed them. Metaphorically, it means if we love our wives, we nurture them, we help them grow spiritually, we help them develop. We're interested in their lives and how they mature and fully formed in Christ. We want what's best for them. We nourish them. It also means to cherish them. That comes from a word that literally means to keep warm. 
It speaks of the kind of intimacy that warms and encourages another. It means we treat our wife with respect, with tenderness, with love, with care. And when we nourish and cherish, we do that even if it means that we lay down our lives for our spouse. Just as Jesus loved the church and laid down his life for her. Men, this is the best way. This is God's best way for you to live. I've heard of a lady who, when hearing this teaching about men being the head, for the very first time she said this, I guess that's okay as long as I can be the neck. And I'll turn him whichever way I want him to go. You know, the 8 o'clock didn't even laugh at that. This I don't think this one's being recorded. I'm already in trouble. <laughs> and I, I was thinking, actually, when they didn't laugh, I thought, you guys know me, you know uh, my joke. Humor-telling ability is sorely lacking. <laughs> and uh, when Bobby sent, when Pastor Bobby sent me the template for this series, this this particular uh, set of uh, section of Corinthians, he put a slide, and you guys know him, you know this. He said, "It said bald men are more godly." <laughs> and so when the eight o'clock service didn't laugh, I thought I'm going to try to, I'm going to should put that slide up so I can at least get some, because I told Bobby I was going to try to get that slide in the sermon. <laughs> But I think that woman's missing the point, don't you? So men, if you're going to be the head of your home, live under the authority of Christ. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. And third, shepherd your wife and children as Jesus does His flock, the church. What does that mean? John chapter 10, Jesus paints this wonderful picture and image of a shepherd. Of course, he's the good shepherd. He speaks about a shepherd who goes ahead of the flock. He speaks about a shepherd who leads his flock and they follow him. Why? Because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They follow the shepherd the Good Shepherd. They know His voice and He knows them by name. To shepherd your wife and children as Jesus does the flock means you you lead your family. Just like Jesus leads the church and a shepherd led the flock, you lead your family in a way that's healthy and good and helps them flourish and grow and mature. You see, shepherds don't drive sheep like cattle. They lead them. They lead them by example. And the sheep will follow. You feed your family. Just as the good shepherd brought the sheep to still waters and to green pastures, you feed your family physically and spiritually. You protect your family. 
Just like the shepherd stands guard against the predators to keep the wolves at bay. A faithful man protects his family physically, spiritually, and emotionally. You look out for their welfare. A man who is a shepherd will lay down his life for his family. I want to speak to every man again in this room. Whether you're an old man like me, whether you're grown and in the prime of your life, whether you're in college, whether you're in high school, whether you're young, I want to speak to every single man in this room today, right now. I don't know what God may call you to as a vocation or what He may have already called you to. You may be a teacher. You may be a salesperson. You may be an executive, a software engineer. You might be a lawyer or a physician. You may work with your hands. You may be really good, a great mechanic. I don't know what God's purposes and plans for you may be. But I want to tell you this. And please listen. There's nothing more important than this role that God gives to men. Nothing. To love your wives. To shepherd them in a God-honoring way for the glory of God. Nothing more important than that, men. And if it costs you everything you have, or everything you are or want to be, if it costs you that, it's worth it all. It's worth it all. But I also want to give you a warning. Identify where a temptation may be. And here it is. Men resist the temptation toward unbiblical and sinful patterns of harsh domination on one side, and disengage passivity on the other side. Resist that temptation. This is what men are tempted to do. On the one hand, men can be, they can get too amped up. They can be too forceful, too harsh, too autocratic, too abrasive. And God forbid, sometimes abusive. There should never be that. That is not Biblical headship, that is not biblical leadership at all. But on the other side, men can be tempted to this. They can be tempted to step back, to do nothing. Let somebody else do it. To be passive. The Scripture says both of these temptations must be resisted. I've enclosed in your notes on page two an excerpt of the Danvers statement. This statement was written and endorsed by evangelical leaders in the late 80s, and I believe it's still helpful to describe what we're talking about today. I've included affirmation four of that statement. They said this, the fall introduced distortions into relationship between men and women. In the home, the husband's loving, humble headship tends to be replaced by domination or passivity. The wife's intelligent, willing submission tends to be replaced by usurpation or civility. And then in the church, 
Sin inclines men toward a worldly love of power or an abdication of spiritual responsibility and inclines women to resist limitations on their roles or to neglect the use of their gifts in appropriate ministries. So in the family, it means that husbands should forsake harsh, selfish leadership. They should grow in love and care for their wives and their families. Wives should forsake resistance to their husband's authority and grow in willing, joyful submission to their husband's leadership. And in the church, and in the church, beloved, redemption in Christ gives men and women an equal share in the blessing of salvation. Nevertheless, there are some governing and teaching roles in the church that are restricted to men. So men, here's my bottom line. It's in your outline. It'll be on the screen. Do you see it? Here's the bottom line, guys. For the good of your family, for the good of the church, for the glory of God, will you be the head of your home? Yielded and submitted to Christ, loving your wife as Christ loved the church, shepherding your family as Jesus has shepherded the flock and resisting the temptations to engage in something other than biblical headship. That's our challenge today. It will honor God. Let us pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that it teaches us, instructs us, that it guides us. And I want to pray, O oh Lord, I pray today that in this generation You would raise up families who teach young men and young ladies biblical patterns of flourishing for the glory of God. And, and Lord, I pray that we can be salt and light in our communities as, as we live out these principles that are good for us and bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, I have a request. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. So my request for you, as you come, the worship team will lead us in a song and, and come and please take the elements and back to your seat and we'll worship and, and then after we finish the song, we'll, we'll take the communion together or supper together. But here's my request. What do you remember about Jesus right now? I've told the earlier services for me personally this morning when I was thinking about the Lord's Supper, I remember this, that Jesus didn't count equality with God 
as something to be used to his advantage. I, I, I'll never, on earth, I don't think I'll ever understand that or comprehend it. But I'm so glad that he did. I'm so glad that he willingly took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself and died so I might be set free of my sins. That's what I'm remembering today. But you may be remembering something different. But I encourage you in the few moments we have, as we prepare to take the Lord's table, remember Him in the way that the Holy Spirit would guide you. Please stand and let's worship. I also would ask you if you'd take the symbol of His body and hold it in your hand. Thinking about those disciples that night, when Jesus got up and took the bread and He broke it and told them that this was His body that would be broken for them, I imagine, I, I know they had to be puzzled because remember, Jesus is riding a wave when He comes into Jerusalem. There's the triumphal entry. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. The, the number of people following Him is exponentially growing. The Jewish leaders are so concerned. They're thinking everyone's going to follow Him, right? And, and, and I believe His disciples, based on their actions, thought He's getting ready to set up the kingdom right now. In fact, James and John's mother is jockeying for position for her boys. So one of them could be on his right hand, one on the left, right? They're thinking it's getting ready to happen. The Romans are going to be driven out. The kingdom is now. It was, they just didn't see it. So when he starts telling them, my body is going to be broken for you, I don't believe they knew what was happening. And as evidenced by what happened at the cross just a few hours later, they scattered like sheep. But beloved, what I want us to remember today, as you take this in a moment, this symbol of His body, I want you and I to remember that it pleased God to crush Him. Why? For us. He endured the cross, despised the shame for the joy that was set before Him, and that joy is every one of us in here who knows and follows Christ. Take His body and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. took the cup that night, a familiar symbol to them, a symbol of the angel of death passing over the firstborn in Egypt and in Israel when the blood is on the doorpost. And he said, that's past. I've got a new covenant for you. Here's my new covenant. This is my blood, which is shed for you to pay the debt of sin that all of us owe. I love the words of that song. When Horatio Spafford heard the news about his daughter's drowning, he wrote this, My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It is well. 
it is well with my soul. Take and drink. King Jesus, we remember you. Stand and please with me in worship. There'll be elders and their wives. I'll be here at the front. Um, I want you to know that this time we set aside, if there's a way, any way that we can pray with you, serve you, it's a privilege for us to do so. Um, so just know that that's available. And um, I sure love you. As you go today, may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May He lift up His countenance to you this day and give you His peace. You are loved. And God bless you today. You're dismissed.